Right, peace be with you. Right, if you want to head back to your seats and open your Bibles to Mark chapter 7. We are looking at Mark chapter 7. Mark chapter 7. And we'll be exploring Mark chapter 7, verses 24 through 30. We're currently making our way through Mark's gospel bit by bit. And if you've been with us for any amount of time, or, or if you're a guest with us, it's your first time here with us this morning, um, should know that this is kind of our preferred method of preaching here. Uh, our, our preferred method is, is something we call expositional preaching. It's something called expositional preaching. Um, and it's not just a preference. We're convicted that it's the only appropriate method of preaching. Expositional preaching is simply a method of preaching that seeks to expound what the biblical text itself says. We believe that the Bible is God's Word, then what He said ought to be the, the subject, the content, the controlling force for our preaching. And so expositional preaching takes a biblical text and seeks to expound and rightly apply what the biblical text itself says. And there are different kinds of expositional preaching. Uh, there's, you know, sometimes people practice what they call selective exposition, uh, expositional preaching that may hop around from text to text to explore certain subjects or topics, and that's a completely fine thing to do. Uh, we do it from time to time. But our, our typical kind of practice here is what we call sequential, not selective, but sequential exposition, wherein we, we plant ourselves in a book of the Bible or a larger text in a book of the Bible, and, and we just simply slowly make our way through it. And that's what we're doing right now here in Mark's Gospel. And I start with that because, uh, to be very frank with you, I very much doubt that our text this morning would be chosen by many preachers if they were doing selective exposition. It's a spicy text this morning. Um, and yet this is one reason why we do sequential exposition here. Uh, because while this text may seem to be difficult at first glance, there are layers and layers of beauty and truth and goodness here that I probably would not have discovered if, if uh, I didn't have to spend time in this text like I did in this past week and be forced to deal with what this text says, and thus our church would, would likely miss out on the beauty that this text has to offer. Unfortunately, we won't have time to explore everything I've, I've found here this morning, but I trust that God's Word will not return to Him void this morning. It will certainly accomplish that which He sends it forth to accomplish. I trust that God will feed His people with His Word here this morning in Mark 7, verses 24 to 30. If you'd like to stand with me for the reading of God's holy and precious Word. Let's listen with reverence and joy to the Word of our God, as Mark writes, inspired by the Holy Spirit, Mark 7, verses 24 to 30. And from there... He arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. 
But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth. And she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, for this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. She went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, please anoint the reading and proclamation of your word with the presence and power of the Holy Spirit so that we might be transformed and conformed more and more to the image of your Son, so that we might be driven more deeply into his heart of mercy, and that we might live as more faithful representatives of him in this world today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let me be seated. Well, this past Sunday we looked at Mark 7, verses 1 through 23, and if you were here, you might have noticed that we, we kind of skipped over some commentary added by Mark, the author of this gospel, without stopping to smell the roses, so to speak. And that was partly because there was just so much in that text that we couldn't cover it all, and partly because I knew that we'd, we'd address it in brief this week. And one of the principles that you need to keep in mind when reading a gospel in the Bible or any narrative book is it's, it's important to pay attention to the comments or explanations made by the author. It's not simply, when he doesn't simply recount the story, but he adds his own comments or explanations of things. It, it, it's important to pay attention to that because in that, he's giving us hints or indicators of how to interpret what he's saying. And last week, in verse 19, we saw in parentheses, just a little aside by Mark, that said, thus he declared all foods clean. And that's a statement brimming with significance as we look at our text this morning. The reason being that the dietary restrictions of, of God's people in the Old Covenant dividing foods up in categories of clean and unclean was, that was at least in part a way in which God caused his people to be distinct and distinguished from the other nations of the world. It was in part a, a visible and physical marker by which God showed that his people were set apart in the world. And yet Mark tells us that Jesus says here, all foods are clean. That just begs the question then, because the reason of those categorizations of setting God's people, setting God's people apart from the Gentile nations of the earth, it just begs the question, well, are all people clean too? And of course, it depends on what you mean. Are all people clean in the, in the sense that sin no longer plagues the heart of every single individual? We saw last week. But the answer must be no, if, if that's what you mean. Jesus said in verse 21 of Mark 7, Out of the heart of man come evil, wicked, vile thoughts, words, and actions. And when Jesus says man there, he's not referring to one specific man, 
but to all humanity in general. Apart from Christ, in our fallen state, we are wicked, vile, evil people who say, do, and think horrendous things. So in that sense, there's no such thing as a clean person apart from Jesus Christ. But in another sense, when asking the question, are all people clean? If you mean to ask whether or not there are clean or unclean ethnicities, people groups, if a person's ethnicity, language, tribe, culture, familial origin makes them unclean or, or, or disqualified from belonging to God and his people, if that's what you mean, well, that's another thing altogether. Based on what our text says this morning, we can say with Peter in Acts 10.34, God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. In fact, I'm sure that Peter had his own experience in Acts 10 in mind as he taught Mark the sequence of the stories that we're looking at currently. Here in our text this morning, Jesus transitions into a largely Gentile region. And while there, we find a sequence of three stories wherein he ministers to Gentiles, non-Jewish peoples. Those who were, as Paul says in Ephesians 2.12, were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise. And this sequence of stories starts with a particular woman. A woman that Mark wants us to, to marvel at because of her unlikely and yet exemplary understanding and faith and perseverance. But even more... Mark wants us to marvel at Jesus here as we see his mission and mercy outspread to those outside and unclean. The mission and mercy of Jesus outspread to those outside and unclean. That's our big idea this morning. We're going we're gonna to explore that under two headings. First, the questions put to Jesus. And second, the questions put to us. The questions put to Jesus and the questions put to us. First, the questions put to Jesus. Our text begins with Jesus heading out of Jewish territory and into Gentile territory, into the region of Tyre and Sidon. And that's not to say that he was in, specifically Tyre and Sidon, but that he was in that general vicinity northwest of Israel. And it seems that he, he took this retreat <coughs> excuse me, for several reasons. First, remember that Herod is beginning to become familiar with Jesus. And if what Herod did with John the Baptist was any indication of what he might try to do with Jesus, well, then Jesus is likely trying to escape Herod's attention here. He's also probably trying to escape the, the continued harassment of the Pharisees. We're, we're fresh off of a confrontation text wherein Jesus made the Pharisees and scribes presumably pretty angry. They just don't seem to want to leave him alone. They keep badgering him and, and trying to start arguments with him. And so he escapes to this Gentile region of Tyre and Sidon to try to hide out. Just as we've seen happen before, Jesus' fame makes his retreats pretty difficult. And so verse 14 tells us, yet he could not be hidden, yet he could not be hidden. It doesn't take long for someone to hear about Jesus' arrival. In fact, Mark uses his favorite word in, in verse 25 here, immediately. Immediately, a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. She hears about Jesus' arrival. Evidently, she had heard about his miracles, about his mercy, and she knew, this is my chance. 
To free, she knew this was her chance to free her, her daughter from demonic oppressions. And so she heads straight to the house where Jesus was rumored to be. She barges in. She falls prostrate at his feet. Matthew's account of the story in, in uh, 15.22 says that she came to him saying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. And Now this is amazing. She calls him Lord. She calls him the son of David. That's messianic language. You know, we haven't even heard the disciples refer to Jesus as such in this gospel yet. Peter will refer to Jesus as such later in Mark 8, but, but we first hear Jesus referred to using this messianic language by someone in these narratives from the lips of this woman. Perhaps Peter heard it first from her too. This woman, she knows who Jesus is, which is surprising because of who this woman is. And Mark wants to make that abundantly clear to us. He seems to want to repeat the fact that she's a woman. That's significant, you see, because Jesus was a Jewish man, of course, you know. Jewish men did not typically have dealings with women like this, contact with a woman like this. Even, even a Jewish woman would have been frowned upon. Would have been viewed, women were, were viewed in many ways as, as kind of a lower class, not worth the attention of your average Jewish man, especially an important rabbi. But what's more, she's not only a woman, she's a Gentile woman. Gentiles were, were considered as being unclean, unclean people, those on the outside of the holy and pure people of Israel. A Jewish man was not even permitted to enter the home of a Gentile. Jews were not to, permitted to have any dealings with Gentiles. In fact, a daily prayer prayed by Jewish men in this period was to thank God daily that he was not born as a woman, a Gentile, or a Samaritan. But what's even worse is that this woman was not just a Gentile, she was a Syrophoenician. What's that? It's a person who's a native of Phoenicia, and that's significant. Because it's supposed, to, it's supposed to make you think of a Phoenician princess in the Old Testament named Jezebel. Jezebel, who you might know, introduced pagan worship into Israel and killed many of God's prophets and opposed the prophet Elijah. She was a Phoenician. Because of that, many Jews in Jesus' day held a particular disdain toward Syrophoenician people. Do you see that this woman has nothing going for her, and actually has everything going against her. As one commentator put it, this woman can claim none of the credits that a good Jew might bring to the prophet of Nazareth. Her only cover letter is her desperate need. Yet she comes to Jesus to ask him to deliver her daughter from demonization. This Syrophoenician woman puts the question to Jesus. In fact, she begs him, Will you deliver my daughter? In fact, that word begged there in verse 26, that verb is in the imperfect tense in the Greek. And, and the imperfect tense generally represents a, a continued, a repeated action. That is to say that she kept on begging here. Matthew's account of this story shows us that Jesus actually initially responded with silence toward her, but her response to his silence was to continually ask, continually beg, continually request, continually plead to Jesus, please deliver my daughter, please free her from this demonic oppression. What's Jesus going to do? 
He responds with a parable. Let the children be fed first. For it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. What does that mean? Doesn't sound good. In this parable, the children are the Jews. The children's bread is Jesus' ministry of, of mercy, of preaching and delivering and healing. And the dogs are the Gentiles. Which on the surface, it seems to be a, a degrading insult, doesn't it? So we live in a dog-loving society. We all know pet people. Maybe you're a pet person. We love little Fluffy or Rover or whatever, but, but in the days of this text, most dogs were not looked well of. They were not loved like Rover or Fluffy is today. They were scavengers. They were wild, dirty, unclean, most dogs were. And with Jews viewing Gentiles as unclean, it was not uncommon for Jewish people to refer to Gentiles as dogs during this time. This is pretty shocking to modern people. We can have kind of a hard time dealing with this. And so, you know, when facing this text, articles will often come out about this particular text every so often. Looking at this particular event in Mark 7 and Matthew 15, and people will read this and they'll claim that Jesus was being racist. They'll often claim that Jesus had a deep prejudice against non-Jewish people up until this point in his life, but that this woman changed his mind and showed him the error of his ways. And so from here on out, Jesus, after this time, is more friendly toward non-Jewish people. Is, is that what happens here? Here's a question modern people often put to Jesus in this text. Is he racist? Perhaps we should say that historically speaking, talking about race at this point in history is kind of misplaced. Race would not have been like a category that, or idea that people were familiar with. Instead, they would have thought much more in terms of, of ethnicity or tribal affiliations, what we might call ethno-linguistic people groups today. But no matter, no matter what, whether you call it racism or ethnocentrism or just general you know, prejudice, the Scriptures clearly condemn all of them under the, the category of what Acts 10.34 or James 2 calls the sin of partiality. The partiality is, is showing favor to certain people groups or, or certain types of people and disfavor to others based on their ethnicity, their socioeconomic status, or any other kind of cultural association. And it's wrong. Scripture condemns it. It's sin. It has no place in Christianity whatsoever. So was Jesus guilty of the sin of partiality here? Well, that would be a problem for us, to say the least. Indeed, our entire faith would be at stake, depending on how we answer that question. The scriptures clearly claim the, the complete and moral perfection of Jesus. Hebrews 4.15 declares that Jesus was entirely without sin, and he must be if he's going to be our Savior. If he was a sinner, then his death on the cross would be of no advantage to us. Because we need a sinless person to take the penalty for our sin. And if he was a sinner himself, Jesus would have been incurring the wages of his own sin on the cross, not ours. 
We, we need a sinless Savior with perfect righteousness to credit His perfect righteousness to our account for us to be made acceptable before God. And so you can see, if Jesus was sinful like us, our, our entire faith is worthless. And so is Jesus showing partiality here? Well, I want to answer that in two ways. First, I want to answer by showing you the larger context of this passage itself and then the specific words of the text itself. First, look at the larger context here. Take a step back from the picture frame so that we can get kind of a larger view of the, the landscape here, if you will. Remember how much bread has been coming up recently. When you see Jesus mentioning bread here, that, that should come to mind. There was the feeding of the 5,000, Mark 6, 30 through 44. There's the issue of washing hands before eating bread just this past week in Mark 7, 1 through 23. And, and whether or not that made someone clean or unclean. And coming up, just following our passage, we actually see Jesus miraculously feed 4,000 people with seven loaves of bread in Mark 8, 1 through 10. And then after that, we'll see Jesus warn his disciples against the leaven of Herod and the Pharisees in Mark 8, 11 through 21. And there, they're going to kind of argue about uh, and, and, and misunderstand Jesus' words about bread there. And so all of this is, is, is here, and it's all exploring the boundaries of who belongs to God and his people and who Jesus came for. And of who is in and who is out the people of God. Should people be excluded because they don't follow the traditions of the elders, like a good Jewish person does? Should people be excluded because they don't eat according to certain dietary restrictions? Should people be excluded because of external things like their ethnicity or is the internal reality of the human heart the deciding factor? The wider context of this passage answers the question, you see, because last week Jesus declared and it wasn't externals that determined cleanness or uncleanness. It was the internal reality of the human heart made clean by his new covenant. What's more is remember that Jesus fed the 5,000 Jews plus the women and children in Mark 6, 30 through 44. But just so, in Mark 8, 1 through 10, he feeds 4,000 not Jews, but Gentiles with bread miraculously. And so look at this pattern here that's emerging. Israel gets fed first, but then the Gentiles get fed as well. And in this, Mark is demonstrating that Jesus has indeed come for the children of Israel. He's come to be their Messiah. He's come to live, die, and rise on their behalf. But he's also come for the Gentiles as well. And he's saying that in all of this, there's more than enough room at the table. That the gift of a new heart and the cleansing power of Christ's blood is for both Jew and Gentile. But he's also saying there's an order to it. Jesus came for the Jews first and then to the Gentiles. He came for the old covenant people of God first and then through them he forms a church for himself that would go on to live as faithful witnesses to all the peoples of the earth. That's why Paul says in Romans 1.16, I am not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God for salvation for all who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Paul is saying there just what Mark is saying here. 
that the gospel is for all peoples. God's welcome is wide enough to welcome all the people groups of the earth, but there's an order to it. And it's always been this way. From the beginning, when Yahweh called and chose the family of Abraham, he, he did so. Remember, we just looked at Genesis 12, 1 through 3 in, in December. Uh, remember, he called this, this people group, the family of Abraham, in order to bless them, but then also so that in them all the nations of the earth might be blessed. And now, in Jesus, the blessing promised to Abraham has come. He's come to to bless Abraham's family with himself, and then he will send disciples out to extend every blessing, his blessing to every nation of the earth in Matthew 28, 18 through 20. That's the kind of larger context here that we're looking at, and it's showing us that Jesus is no ethnocentrist. He's not racist. He's not prejudiced. In the Old Testament, he promised to bless and redeem a people from every nation of the earth. Here in this sequence of events in Mark, he delivers, he feeds, he he heals Gentiles, those considered outside and unclean. When he died on the cross, he shed his blood and died to redeem Gentiles, to bring in those who were outside and cleanse those who were unclean. Is he racist? No, that's the larger context showing us this. Then also look at the specific words of Jesus here as well. Look at the specific words. He, He said to her, it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Look at that word dogs. And when Jesus uses the word dogs here, he doesn't actually use the typical word translated as dog. He uses a different, more unusual word. It's only used four times in the New Testament, twice in Mark 7 here, and twice in the same event in in Matthew 15. The usual word for dog we used to describe those mangy, unclean, street-scavenging dogs that we talked about earlier that would roam city streets and the city dump and who were undoubtedly unclean. That, that, that was the word that Jews often used to speak of Gentiles in that degrading and derogatory manner. But Jesus doesn't use that word. He uses the word for dog that would mean little puppies. You can look this up. These little puppies that a family would often take into their home and feed from their very own table. It's not a word for wild, mangy, street-scavenging dogs, but for a household pet that comes inside, that the family feeds from their own table. Can you see in that how, how Jesus is, he's on the one hand applying some slight resistance to her, to be sure, Being called a dog, even a beloved dog, is is not entirely desirable. But do you see how he's also intentionally and purposefully and winsomely kind of cracking the door open here? She's knocking on the door, and he doesn't dismiss her, but he, he just slightly cracks the door open. He applies a little bit of resistance, but for a greater purpose. We see that also in the word first. Let the children be fed first. He doesn't say no. He didn't say that her ethnicity disqualified her from the blessing of his ministry. He just said that his earthly ministry prioritized the people of the nation of Israel. And again, you can see there that he's kind of he's cracking the door open, so to speak. He's, he's applying some gentle pressure to test her. And I, I, I love this woman. You know what she does to Jesus kind of just cracking the door? She kicks it wide open. See there in verse 28, 
But she answered him, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. (laughs) She answers wit with wit. One commentator called this a battle of the wits, which this woman wins. (laughs) That's amazing. What an answer that is. Spurgeon says that she, in essence, responds, that's fine, Lord. I'll be a little dog so long as I'm your little dog. I'd rather be your little dog than the devil's darling any day. And if I'm your little dog, feed me. And Jesus himself loves her answer. Matthew's account tells us that he he marvels at her faith. He's amazed by her faith. He loves her faith. He loves her response. He loves this woman. And so we see him respond in verse 29. Jesus responds, For this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. She persists. He answers her according to her faith. And her daughter is healed and delivered instantly. And why did this take place in the way that it did? Hopefully one of the things that we've learned in Mark's gospel so far is that Jesus, he's not doing anything on accident here. And Mark doesn't record any of this on accident. He was very intentional in what he recorded and, and, and how he organized it all. There, there is a brilliantly designed school of discipleship that Jesus' disciples are in here. And he has this brilliant curriculum for them. And Mark has a brilliant way of drawing that out and teaching us in his literary patterns and themes so that we're included in the school of discipleship as well as we read. And so we've seen the questions put to Jesus. But in these questions being put to Jesus and in his responding in the way that he does and in his pressing in the way that he does, he's also putting questions to us. What are the questions? Jesus is putting to us here. And there are a lot of ways we could answer this question, but I've got three. There are two personal questions and a missional question. Two personal questions and a missional question. First, the personal. Have we come to Jesus with this kind of humble confidence? We come to Jesus with this kind of humble confidence. Her humility is astounding, is it not? She comes to Jesus just just begging him, bowing down at his feet. She doesn't come with a list of her qualifications or accomplishments. She doesn't come pleading her rights before him. She doesn't even come saying, you know, well, I'm as good as anyone else. She doesn't even dispute being referred to as a dog by him. Her only cover letter is her desperate need, and she knows it. And yet she comes utterly confident in the power and mercy of Jesus to meet her need. How how could that not be an illustration for how we're all to come to Jesus? Especially as, as we put this text up in contrast with Mark 7, 1 through 23. The religious leaders of the day, the authorized theologians of the day, the holy people of the day, the Pharisees and the scribes, They show us precisely how not to come to Jesus. Even even Christ's own disciples serve as a contrast with this woman of her humility and faith. This woman, this Gentile Syrophoenician woman, 
She shows us precisely how one ought to come to Jesus with humility, but with utter confidence and faith in his mercy and power. You know, Martin Luther, the, the night before he died, weekend sick, unable to speak a word, actually, he, he wrote down these words. We are all beggars. It is true. I wonder if he had this woman in mind when he wrote those words. You know, it's, it's recorded that throughout his life, he, he was recorded as having really loved this passage and really identifying with this woman here. Luther saw something in her so illustrative about us as broken humanity, so unworthy of God's grace and love, and yet grasping it by faith in Christ. We're all this woman, Luther would tell us. We're all beggars. We're all dogs. And our only plea is the kindness, the grace, the mercy of Jesus. Friends, it's worth asking yourself, why do you think you should be accepted in the kingdom of God? And you very well might know how to, how to answer that question in a doctrinally correct way, but truly our functional beliefs betray our, our confessions all the time. Why do you think in your heart of hearts why you should be accepted in the kingdom of God? And if you at all answer that question in the first person, you've taken a wrong turn. You're confident in the wrong thing. Well, well, I grew up in a Christian family. Well, I'm a church-going person. I walked an aisle and prayed a prayer. I pray and read my Bible every day. I try to do the right thing by other people and stand up against wrongdoing. I try to do more good than bad. Don't you see... Friends, the, 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 the question must only be answered in the third person. He, he, I'm a beggar, but he is my plea. I'm a dog, but he is my claim and cleanliness. All my resume displays is my need, but he in his righteousness is more than enough to cover me. I'm a, I'm a sinner, a weakling, an outsider, unclean, but he, my Christ, my help, my, my cleanliness, my Savior, he is sufficient for me. He is my righteousness. He is my strength. He is my in. He is my cleansing. His cross paid my penalty. His resurrection is my justification. He is more than enough to meet my need. You can only say, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the Christ I cling we come to Jesus in humility in regards to ourselves and utter confidence in him and who he is. Next, do we pray with this kind of boldness and perseverance? This woman, she boldly laid claim to Christ. She, she wrestled and clung to him like Jacob wrestled and clung to the Lord in Genesis 32. She would not let him go until he blessed her. Remember her perseverance, how she begged, and how that's in the imperfect tense. She continued on even when there was no answer. And even when she did get an answer and it seemed on the surface to be no, she, she still continued on. She didn't stop. As J.C. Ryle says about this woman, as hopeless as this little girl's case appeared, she had a praying mother, and where there is a praying mother, there is always hope. Praying mothers are some of the best examples to us in bold and persevering prayer. And this woman is no exception. She argued her case before the Lord and, and she prevailed gloriously. 
You know, this is one of the few debates in Scripture that we see the Lord lose. And yeah, I, I trust this is a happy loss. Jonathan Edwards once said in his sermon, uh, the most high prayer hearing God, he says that the Lord delights in being conquered by our prayers. At times, he, he seems to not be hearing us, to not be answering us. At times, he, he seems to even say no. But in those times, he's often applying a little resistance that we might press in by faith with bold and persevering prayer. There might be a number of reasons why he does that. To deepen our faith in him or to draw out our faith in him and display it like he did here. But sometimes the Lord seems not to answer for his own higher reasons. And yet that's not an invitation to stop praying. It's an invitation to keep praying, to keep praying boldly, to keep persevering. I know this is something that we all struggle with. Just two weeks ago, a member asked for counsel regarding when it's appropriate to, to stop praying for particular desire and request. He's been praying for this particular request for years, and it seems that the Lord is not answering. What do you, what do, you do? When is it okay to stop praying, to stop pressing in, to, to stop boldly persevering in prayer? We do have at least one occasion in Scripture where the Lord tells someone to stop praying about a particular thing. It's the Apostle Paul in, in 2 Corinthians 12, 1 through 10. And, and that, was, that was specific to him and to his particular situation. And so it seems that there are times where it's permitted to, to stop with a particular request. But the overwhelming emphasis in Scripture's teaching on prayers to persevere and patiently endure and continue to wait upon the Lord in prayer, to grab hold of him by faith and to not let go until he blesses you. We pray with this kind of boldness and perseverance. Parents, do you pray for your children like this? Christian, do you pray for your unbelieving family members like this? Are you praying for, for reconciliation with those that you're estranged from like this? Those suffering from doubt and lack of assurance, do you, do you pray like this for assurance of salvation? Whatever your, your needs or desire is, do you pray like this? Like this Syrophoenician woman, she is exemplary. She shows us that the, the, that the Lord delights in being conquered by such prayers. And then lastly, the missional question. Do we care about bringing those outside in? Mark is extremely purposeful in including this story, this sequence of stories where Jesus' ministry to the Gentiles, the nations, takes place. That's what Gentiles mean. It means nations. Distinguished from the nation of Israel. Part of the, the purpose of Jesus' coming was to purchase on his cross a people from every nation and tribe and tongue of the earth so that on the last day the vision that we find in Revelation 7 might be fulfilled. There we see a vision wherein a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and languages and peoples are all standing before the throne, before the Lamb, gladly adoring their God and their Christ Jesus saying, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. 
Friends, there are no unclean foods, and that vision shows us there are no unclean people. There are individuals from all peoples and nations of the earth who are destined by God to be objects of his redemption and worshipers of his name. And Jesus came to accomplish that end. He came first for the Jew. They were fed first. But he came also for the Greek, for the Gentile, for the nations. Jesus stretched his arms wide on his cross in order to embrace a people from every nation of the earth so that they might be brought into his kingdom. The glory and grace, the redeeming and restoring love of Jesus Christ is not meant to be hidden. It cannot be hidden, just as Jesus could not be hidden here. The good news of Christ is meant to go forth into all nations and tribes and tongues. And so if we care about Jesus and about his gospel, then we have to care about that. That's why he came. Do we care about the lost being brought into the fold? Do we care about those outside being brought in and given a seat at the table? And of course, this is, this is relevant as we consider those that we come into contact with in our daily lives. Do you care about those with whom you come into contact with in your daily life that are wandering about like sheep without a shepherd? Have you identified your, your one that the elders are calling you to identify, that one person in your life that in this season you're intentionally praying for and seeking to engage with the gospel and with this community? But even more relevant to the, to the, to, to the text at hand here, do we care about the people groups across the earth that, that right now are unreached with the gospel? The Joshua Project says that there's 7,398 of them. That's 7,398 unreached people groups making up 3.27 billion people. Too many of those are unengaged people groups, people groups that have no access to the gospel and for whom no one is currently trying to get them access to the gospel. At the very least, that deserves our prayers. Do we pray for, for missionaries who are bringing the gospels across the, the, the gospel across cultures and oceans? Do we pray for unreached people groups to have the gospel brought to them and to be reached with the gospel? Surely we can do more than pray to. We can give, we can act, we can get involved. We have a missions team here at Veritas. They're praying, they're strategizing, they're, they're organizing, they're planning trainings for later this year on, uh, on, on trying to teach how to engage Muslims with the gospel. They're planning on, on a short-term missions trip this summer. Would you consider being a part of what they're doing because you care about the gospel and you care about those outside being brought in? And moreover, I, I would remind you, I'm, I'm still praying for three to five individuals or families from our church to sense the call and make the decision to go to the nations, to cross cultures and oceans armed with the truth of the gospel. And so I'd simply ask you, are you open? Are you open to crossing cultures and oceans? Are you open to going to the nations yourself as a missionary? Are you open to, to picking up your life and moving across the world if it means that people who have never heard about the glory and grace of Jesus Christ can hear and know and be with him forever. 
Do we care about those outside being brought in? We, we were brought in because Jesus came for us. We were brought in because his mission and mercy outspread to us, those who were outside and unclean. We were dogs, but he's given us a seat at the table as sons and daughters. We're like this Syrophoenician woman whose only qualification was her desperate need, but who walked away well-fed by her Jesus. Because in all reality, there are no unclean people. Jesus came for all the people's of the earth, and our Jesus cannot be hidden. Let's pray together. Father, seal this word upon our hearts as we come to be fed by Jesus at his table now. We pray that as we are well fed by him, that we would be a means through which you work to bring his bread to others so that they might know him, that they might be saved by him, that they might be cleansed and redeemed by him. Help us to to follow the example of this Syrophoenician woman here in our humility in regards to ourselves, but our utter confidence in you and your son and your grace and your glory. Help us to 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 follow in her footsteps as we lay hold of you in bold and persevering prayer and cause her to serve as a needed reminder that you have other sheep who have yet to hear and who need to be brought into this fold, who need to be brought to the table, who need to be fed with the bread of life, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray these things. Amen.